anything, my concern is that they will change the world without understanding the world. They're a bit more, I would describe these models a little bit more like a bureaucracy. Hi, welcome to AOPI, the podcast where we chat with pioneers and thought leaders in the field of artificial intelligence and digital health. My name is Harry and I'm a medical student at King's College London, as well as a researcher at Yale University. Shortly, you'll also hear from my colleague Hamza, who is also a medical student. Together, we're very interested in digital health and the future of medicine. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Alex Gillespie, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science at LSE. Much of his work focuses around perspective taking and how that influences human interaction, particularly with a focus on artificial intelligence. This is an absolutely fascinating conversation on consciousness, on the nature of human interaction, and on the future of healthcare. I hope you enjoy. Hi Alex, it's great to meet you. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Speaking with Hamza leading up to this episode, one of the things that I was really looking forward to uh, about our conversation was hearing about your work in the North Indian province of Ladakh. That's because it's, uh, it's a place that I have a particular affinity for. Oh, really? And if we might explore that a little, what work were you doing there and how has that work shaped your understanding of consciousness? Okay, yes. Um, I did. I did my, my PhD research in Ladakh in northern India. And my motivation is actually very theoretical. So I'm interested in how humans become self-aware, how they become aware of themselves. It seems to me to be a defining feature of humanity. And I, I mean, non-human animals, in my view, they have pain and suffering and joy and they enjoy their food and we share many embodied uh, visceral aspects with them but this concern we have with ourselves and how we're perceived by others seems to be peculiarly human and the the theories which i use to think about that are from social psychology classic social psychology particularly george herbert mead who said that in order to be self-aware we have to see ourselves from the outside. And so the problem is how we sort of get outside of ourselves. And his insight was that we are already outside of ourselves from the perspective of other people. So you are outside me, and if I could understand how you see me, I would in a sense get outside of myself. So he put perspective taking at the heart of human self-awareness, self-reflexivity, self-guidance, self-talk, all these sort of higher mental functions about how we direct ourselves and monitor ourselves, he would say come from this ability to do perspective taking. So what was I doing in Ladakh in North India? Well, I was looking for a context where two very different perspectives were colliding. And there what we had is, um, it was in the late 70s, really early 80s, when tourists started arriving in Ladakh. And you have there some um, villages which are very remote and uh, they sort of haven't had, or until then, hadn't had much contact with with, uh, 
the sort of Western world, as it were, although you can certainly debate that, but relatively remote. And I was interested in how the perspective of tourists and these local communities was, was colliding and the changing self-consciousness of the local communities. So how did bringing in this external perspective, the tourists, change the locals, the Ladakhis' way of seeing themselves? And what I found was that, you know, before the tourists arrived, the Ladakhi community didn't really have a concept of culture as, as tourists conceptualize it. It was just, you know, um, they, they certainly had practices and they had culture, but they didn't have a self-reflexive awareness of culture. But then tourists started arriving, started photographing things and people would say, why are you photographing? They'd say, oh, because you have this wonderful culture. And then you see the English word for culture enter into the Ladakhi language as they begin to reconceptualize themselves in, in cultural terms. And even then you got uh, more nationalist movements arising, um, some intergroup conflict arising because the, the tourists were very keen on the Buddhists and sort of accentuated this aspect of Ladakh uh, when there's a, a significant group of Muslims who are there, but they weren't so much in the tourist gaze. So all sorts of transformations of consciousness, if you like, began occurring when we brought in this sort of tourist perspective. So that is what I was doing in northern India. Fascinating. I think you picked a, uh, an amazing place to study. I honestly couldn't have picked it better myself. Beautiful, yeah. I remember hearing stories when I was in Ladakh of how two different communities in adjacent valleys right near each other were essentially unable to speak with each other up until fairly recently because their dialects and their languages were so different. Do you think that's had any impact on perspective taking, empathy and, uh, and ideas of self? I, I can only imagine that those vast differences in culture, even in very geographically close communities must have been very interesting to study. Yeah, so I mean the, the, the mountains there are so awesome and, and the routes through them so narrow until recently that you definitely had, as you describe, sort of pockets of where as the crow flies, if you like, they might have only been 50 miles apart or 100 miles apart, but culturally and largely due to many days it would take to cross between valleys and so on, they were culturally quite distinct. Yeah, um, a fascinating part of the world, which has undergone huge changes in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Interesting. And how about your work at LSE, Alex? How, how do you think that has influenced your understanding of human consciousness? Well, so, I mean, maybe you go out and you find what you expected, but I certainly <laughs> have, have uh, uh, strengthened my view that uh, social interaction is key to developing consciousness and awareness of ourselves. But maybe while we think of awareness as being a binary on-off and people are very concerned with, you know, the difference between humans and animals and so on, I've become more of the view that maybe consciousness is more contentful and varies 
um, in terms of what we are conscious of. It's not like I have consciousness or I don't, but maybe we should be thinking more, what am I conscious of? And how many things am I conscious of? And then you begin to see that when you enter into a new in social interaction, it, it brings a new awareness often, not always, um, but it often brings a new awareness of yourself as you discover that you have some relevance for some other people which you might not have been aware of. Um, but let me give a, a more everyday example. Um, there are many cases where other people are more aware of us than we are. So uh, there's a lot of bad drivers out there on the roads, but very few people think of themselves as bad drivers. It's normally something which we see in other people, but we don't see in ourselves. Or in a more clinical case, uh, people who have a gambling problem or are addicted to a substance of some sort, they're often less aware of the problem than other people. So in, in many contexts, other people have more awareness of us than we do of ourselves. And then through interaction, and this is what I would say therapy is and so on, we become aware of how other people are thinking of us. So what I've learned is that in all these interactions, I mean, those are more pathological ones, but there's more positive ones as well. Someone uh, might like what we've done and then we take that feedback. And I've done research on uh, compliments and so on and how that changes our sense of self. So in, in these small micro interactions, we get feedback from others and that feedback expands our consciousness or our awareness of ourselves as we become aware of who we are to other people, whether we're annoying them or whether we're doing good things. And this is why I think people like helping each other because it gives us that positive social recognition and expands our, our self. So uh, Hamza, to answer your question more specifically, what have I learned? I've, I found what I expected to find, but I've begun to think of consciousness and awareness as, as more in any particular interaction, what is it which is expanding my awareness of myself? How, how did I um, become aware of some new aspect of myself through a social interaction? And that's, I find, particularly sharp in the work I've done in healthcare on complaints and compliments, where specifically someone's giving you feedback on some aspect of what you've done, and this changes, hopefully, not always, um, how you think of yourself. Alex, I've been reading your work over the summer and I have to admit it has certainly had a great influence on my understanding of consciousness. Would you say then that consciousness is, or at least an integral part of it, is just us reacting to the feedback that we're receiving from the external environment and constantly using it to build a model of ourselves based on it? Yeah, I, I mean, it is a very social psychological approach uh, and it doesn't emphasize the, the neurobiological underpinnings, which of course are there. It's, it's unquestionable there's a mirror neuron system or something which is sustaining that perspective taking. Um, but yes, for me, the heart of it is that growing awareness of ourselves from the point of view of others. But I should caveat that, that we don't necessarily take the perspective of others accurately. Okay, so there's a lot of misunderstandings in that. And interestingly, that doesn't undermine our sense of self-awareness. So if I'm deluded and I think everyone thinks I'm brilliant, right? <laughs> I will have this self-awareness of myself as brilliant, even though it has no basis in reality. 
So the, the actual perspectives we take and what we imagine them to be are not of consequence when it comes to that growing awareness of ourselves. Um, but one other point I would like to make is that from this point of view, um, it's also not that I become aware of myself when I take this perspective or that perspective, but maybe we should think of our minds as a mental space in which there are many perspectives, not one perspective, this or that, but multiple perspectives, possibly contradictory perspectives, possibly complementary, uh, but certainly in various states of tension. And this is what uh, motivates our, our thinking processes. If you look at when people are ruminating, when they're gossiping, when they're talking, what we're churning over often is what other people are thinking. So in studies of natural language, when you look at people just normally talking, about 70% of what they say is talk about other people. And particularly what other people are thinking and saying and doing and why and how that relates to me. So we're constantly sort of, our minds move in this very social world of perspectives and trying to reconcile and fit ourselves into that matrix of perspectives which comes from the social world. So we are a, a node in a, in a very complex web of perspectives and to some extent we've internalized those more or less accurately and our mental life is the sort of movement in that matrix of perspectives as we we navigate ourselves through the social world uh, that's pretty much my view on, on, on what consciousness is um. Alex something that strikes me about your work is is that it's almost selfless in its conceptualization of consciousness it's very focused on community on how we interact with others <clears throat> and uh, and how they view us i i feel like this is in contrast to much of the work around consciousness that i've read which almost tends to be quite self-centered and introspective i wonder what you think of the idea that Perhaps it could be a difficult process to assimilate in one's own understanding. This idea that actually consciousness arises through our interactions with others almost. Because ego seems to have so much to do with how we view ourselves. Do you think that it, in reality it can be quite difficult to appreciate that our own consciousness is almost defined by others and how they view us? Oh, Harry, I think that's an excellent question. Um, yes, a lot of the dominant uh, academic and lay theories of humans is of uh, individual utility maximizers sort of seeking their own interest and uh, first and foremost aware of themselves. So, uh, you know, it's commonly assumed that people know themselves best, whereas I'm arguing quite strongly that of course there are secrets and things you know yourself best, but there's other aspects of yourself where other people know you better. Um, just because the external perspective adds something. So is that difficult? Uh, I think it's a bit against the grain of uh, common sense and a bit against the grain of academia. And yet it makes sense of a number of puzzles. Because if you take a view of people as kind of either all self-knowing or all self-interested, you end up with loads of paradoxes. So 
why would we ever go to therapy if we knew ourselves? Why would we go talking to other people about our problems and asking for their advice if we, if we know ourselves so well? Why do we help other people again and again, even when we have no um, uh, selfish, like explicitly selfish gain from that, although people will argue that we gain some psychological um, benefit? But there's loads of evidence of humans having goodwill, uh, going out of their way to complement each other, support each other, and do things for each other and um, I've done work on uh, care informal care you know, it's the largest job in the world if it were paid is caring for kids caring for elderly people caring for people with disabilities these are very selfless acts um, and humans seem to get some fulfillment through it so the only way we can begin to understand that is to see that what's valuable there is that we're somehow building our identities through those social relations. We are uh, cultivating how we are seen in the minds of others, but also gaining um, gaining recognition. So there's a, a wonderful uh, passage in William James, a pragmatist philosopher and psychologist from 120 years ago, who says that the cruelest torture you can ever imagine is to be in the social world and have nobody recognize you. So you walk into a room and nobody looks at you in the eye, nobody acknowledges that you entered, nobody uses your name, you just, you're sort of invisible in the social world. And he says that this is the cruelest torture he can imagine, more cruel than any physical torture, because although you could stand it for a day or a week or a month, after years of being socially invisible, the self would start to dissolve and fall apart and you'd start to wonder who who am I and what you know the, the very basis of consciousness actually would start to dissolve so what we're doing I think in a lot of social relations is trying to affirm ourselves through gaining that recognition from others and it's only a social theory of the self and of consciousness which can explain why all that behavior happens uh, there's just too many exceptions to us being all-knowing and totally self-interested. We are deeply woven into social relations. Mm, certainly a fair bit to think about there. One thing that got mentioned earlier was the, were the anatomical underpinnings of consciousness. And thinking along the same idea, one, th one theory in particular that comes to mind about the origins of consciousness is that consciousness is nothing but an accidental byproduct of all the electrical activity going on in our brain. I wonder what your thoughts are on this particular theory, Alex. Uh, somewhat flippantly, I think accidental isn't a great theory. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe there's, and of course, in, in, in evolution, there's lots of accidents and, and, and micro changes at the genetic level. But I think a satisfactory explanation needs a bit more um, depth. So exactly what is the nature of that accident and how did it happen? And I, I, as I said, there's absolutely a biological underpinning. Anything which we do has to have a biological underpinning because if you take away the human body, right, everything else is gone. So um, clearly that's, that's crucial. What happened, that's not my area of expertise, but um, I do 
think that obviously we had evolutionary random variation going on um, but uh, it's very difficult to explain you see a, a random mutation um, would occur in one person at a time so let's take language which I would say is crucial for our psychology and even for self-awareness through language we become more aware of ourselves but how could language evolve uh, in terms of random mutations is quite difficult because you sort of have to get two people with the same random mutation so that they can communicate and, and problems like this. It probably was a co-opting of previously existing um, cognitive capacities. So culture becomes a sort of way of reusing uh, other um, capacities which have evolved for other things like we have fingers right and our fingers evolved for manipulating tools and so on and now we use them for communicating by typing where we're constantly culture appropriates previously evolved uh, functions and uses them in new ways and I suspect language and so on possibly um, co-opted uh, other you know cognitive capacities and use them in new ways which and, and it accounts for how rapidly it's spread and developed but um, there's a lot of speculation there I, I, I don't know that that's a closed case at all I, I think it's a lot of uncertainty in that but for us remember when we're making theories well what's a theory for and some theories are technocratic to help us manipulate things and and act in the world and others are just hermeneutic to give us a good story to explain why we're here and I think on both of those counts the idea that it's a sort of accident isn't very helpful because it doesn't really tell us what we can change to improve and develop uh, our awareness or consciousness and it doesn't really give a satisfactory explanation for who we are and, and the nature of our being it's not a very rich concept of the human you touched a lot on language and how fundamental language is to our own sense of self and our own consciousness of self. If we might apply these principles to the field of AI and health, because that is the majority of what we like to talk about, clearly a bit of philosophy as well. <laughs> so since AI is set to play an increasingly important role in our day-to-day -day interactions, where do you think AI might play a role here when it comes to language? I mean, you, you touched on your work with uh, human natural language, which is a huge field in AI development and research. What is your perspective on uh, natural language processing in AI? And where do you see the nature of the problem of understanding human language and where that will take us in, in, in the field of AI? Okay, great. Um, so yes i'm i'm very enthusiastic on language as a window into uh humans and i i often think that if someone had a brain scanner which could tell you what people were thinking everyone would be very impressed and it would be front page news well if you just listen to people talking it tells you what they're thinking right so we've had this uh, technology for a long time but it's so pervasive we don't we don't recognize it we live and breathe language and what we're doing every time we talk you and me talking now we're sharing what we're thinking right so our 
And not only that, if you took away the language, I couldn't have these thoughts. So they're not only the means of sharing perspectives, but they are the means of creating new perspectives and perspectives we couldn't have, thoughts we couldn't have without language. So yes, language is key in my view. And that's not necessarily verbal language. We can have symbolic language, and amazing growth in emojis and all sorts of different types of languages going on at present. But some symbolic communicative uh, capacity is key and those symbols are used first and foremost to shape the minds of others and have a secondary consequence that we can shape our own minds we can talk to ourselves we can use the symbols to not only chastise others but chastise ourselves to praise others and also praise ourselves and ask others questions and ask ourselves questions language has this reversibility which i think is key to the reflexive nature of consciousness so yes i'm keen on language now where ally with with the AI model. So there's very exciting what's been happening. Um, and, you know, a lot of press recently about um, the GPT-3 model. I don't know if you know about that, the big language model, which basically sort of takes all the text on the internet and crunches it for a couple of weeks and makes a huge model where you can put in um, sentences and it will complete the paragraph and it will it will do uh, things which to us seem quite remarkable because it it in a sense will will write paragraphs and generate content you can say do it in this style or do it in that style and and um, you look at these sentences and they are quite coherent I think there's two things which follow from that um, one question people ask is is, is the AI conscious in the sense that we are and i think absolutely not and in one sense it has been called and i agree with this it's a it's a glorified card trick there is no intelligence underlying those models impressive as they are they exploit statistical properties in language that um if you troll the internet and you have all of that in your memory and someone gives you a starting sentence you look at statistical patterns and find what's the kind of couple of sentences closest to those starting phrases and then you follow on with text which is similar okay you can do that statistically without understanding language but from a human point of view it looks very convincing um, so i do not think that those models are conscious in any way like humans. They don't have that awareness of other perspectives. They don't have the viscerality. They don't have the emotions. They don't have the understanding of concepts. But they do have a type of intelligence. It's just not an intelligence we can understand, right? It's a different type of intelligence, not a human type. Second thing I'd say is, although that might sound a bit down on those models, the truth is they will change the world fundamentally. Just because they don't have human understanding doesn't mean they're not powerful. Technocratically, they're hugely powerful because so much of the world runs on language that to be able to um, even just search all the human language, which is what Google has built, you know, one of the largest companies in the world in 20 years, by just being able to search human language. And that just shows you if just searching it can build the world's largest company and it doesn't need to understand things to search, just begin to think what will happen as um, that capacity gets more advanced, you know, in, in medical fields, medical notes, or in my, my research in patient feedback and patient complaints, there's just um, millions of, of 
bits of textual information which are siloed away and locked in different uh, places. And as that gets pooled together, integrated, we can identify, um, in the case of healthcare, safety incidents, uh, adverse reactions to drugs and so on, in, in a level of depth, which we can't do otherwise. So, I, so to summarise my view on those models, they do have... I'm reluctant to use the word intelligence even because it has human connotations. I think we're dealing with something a bit different. They are statistical modern models which are very powerful. To a human, they look like they understand, but they do not understand in any sense like we understand. But that doesn't mean they're not powerful and that doesn't mean they won't change the world. If anything, my concern is that they will change the world without understanding the world. They're a bit more, I would describe these models a little bit more like a bureaucracy. A bureaucracy doesn't understand what it's doing. It's just, you know, if then, if then, this, then that, if this, then that, and sort of categorizing people and shunting them into different channels. In a sense, these models and the IT infrastructure built over them will be doing the same without any real awareness of what it's doing. But it is following statistical patterns. So it's a kind of blind bureaucrat. <laughs> if I were to characterize the model, a very powerful, all-knowing bureaucrat, but it's the bureaucrat doesn't really know what they're doing. It's interesting that you draw such a clear distinction between machine and human intelligence. Because we, we've done a couple of episodes on that in the past. And <clears throat> something that I noticed is that many of the pioneering authors and scientists in machine learning have actually not been so clear about this distinction. Perhaps they've been overly optimistic because for the most part we haven't achieved the things that, that were predicted. But it, it seems to be on the horizon. I don't know if you're aware of Turing's imitation game, but... Just briefly, it's this idea that if a machine, an agent or a being, can convince someone that it is intelligent, then effectively it is intelligent. How does your perspective on consciousness fit in with this paradigm? Yeah, I, I mean, Turing's original paper makes a very good point, and I would agree with him in one sense that uh, all we have to go on in making that judgment is the information we're given. So if we can't tell the difference, then there is no difference. It's very empirical sort of approach. Let me give a little digression though. So uh, with Kevin Corty, who's now working at uh, Google and did a PhD with me a couple of years ago, uh, we did a series of experiments on the Turing test. And what we did was we got a chatbot um, and it, wasn't a great chatbot. They've improved a lot in the last couple of years. This was four or five years ago. And we had the chatbot give answers to questions. So we were going to have, a, we had participants interact with the chatbot, but sometimes they knew they were interacting with the chatbot. And at other times they would encounter a human with a hidden earpiece, okay? And the, the human would ask, the, what they thought was another human a question, the, the, the speech would go into the chatbot, the chatbot would produce a response, the response was fed into the earpiece and the human would give the response. Okay, So when people were interacting with the chatbot, knowing it was a chatbot, they all thought it was a chatbot. 
What's amazing is that when interacting with the chatbot through a human body, so they see a flesh and bones human in front of them, um, they didn't think it was a chatbot and they were quite happy to have 10 minute conversations which were completely surreal <laughs> and uh, bizarre. Uh, and they came away from it thinking that that conversation was within the bounds of normality. And this tells us something actually it goes back to the social nature of um, our being because if someone interacts with a, a chatbot and we know this chatbot was making fairly using fairly simple rules and arbitrary responses often generated from previous input and they come out of that feeling they had a substantive human connection it raises all sorts of problems because Obviously, that feeling you might have of connecting with someone else might not be a feeling which is reciprocated. Does it matter if it's reciprocated? Maybe it doesn't. Again, it, it says that it goes back to what I was saying about the perspective taking isn't necessarily accurate in any sense. We can have an interaction with someone. We can think that we're connecting. We can feel some humanity and warmth, even if there's none there from the other person's point of view. So... Turing's test really brings us to the crux of the social nature of our being again, that the only way to detect um, yeah, whether, whether we're, we're connecting with someone is that moment of social interaction. That is, when you pair everything away, you can't escape that moment of interaction. And that moment of interaction is filled with as much projection as reality, I think. Um, so, yeah, you can. Uh, my, my short answer to your question is: we can pass the Turing test easily if we put AI in human bodies. Um, if AI is not in a human body, in a strange sense, we'll probably never really pass the Turing test because people will always know it's an AI, and therefore they will attribute to it. A different set of cognitive abilities and what's happening now is that we're beginning to build a perspective taking model of AI so when you interact with AI when you interact with anyone you have to have an orientation to their perspective so when you ask me a question you are assuming that I know something or making some assumptions about my perspective equally when I talk to Google Home or Siri or something I'm addressing their perspective I have an internal model of what I think they know what I think uh, they can do how I think they want me to talk to them and what's actually beginning to emerge is a, a shared set of ideas a representation a social representation of AI and that's guiding people's interactions with AI. And insofar as we decide AI is different from humans, then we will view AI as different from humans so long as we can see it is AI, um, not in a human body. If it's in a human body, people don't really know the difference and increasingly won't. So what I, that, that was a slightly messy point, but what I'm trying to say is there's a looping effect. What we think AI is shapes how we interact with AI. You're certainly making a very compelling case for the social underpinnings of consciousness. <laughs> I did warn you at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm just, I'm well aware that we're running a little over time. So maybe it's a good point to reflect on the journey that we've taken over the course of this conversation and draw things to a close. 
you've certainly piqued my interest in the social underpinnings of consciousness. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Well, thank you for a great question, Hamza and Harry. It was great talking to you.